And so for us here in this room this morning, we're going to be continuing our series through Philippians. So if you would grab your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter four. If you're in need of a hard copy of a Bible, we do have some available in the back. Um, We ask that you would be open to this passage, the entirety of the message, so that as we reference things, you can see that what we're saying here up front is coming directly from God's word. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter two, verses uh, two through nine. And so if you are willing and you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The word of the Lord says, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. And so this section of scripture in some ways is quite eclectic. Paul is beginning to draw a conclusion to this epistle and it's almost as if he's fitting in all these last minute commands before his time to go is present. But nevertheless, one unifying thing that I see in this part of scripture is the peace of God that we are a people as humanity who seek peace, that peace is of high value to you and to I. So much so that even in beauty pageants of all things, when interviewed, what would you change about the world? The most common answer is world peace. We've seen that represented if you've sat and watched them or watched some of the um, mockeries of things or comedy, But, but world peace is something that the world longs for. Peace with one another is something that we seek in our lives. If you are in a situation where there's not peace in your home, you know how discouraging, how comfortable that can be. And this passage gives us a little bit of a roadmap of how to pursue peace, which ultimately comes through God. There is no means by which you or I or this world will ever see peace in the truest sense without finding it in God himself made available to us because of what Christ has done. And so in this section of scripture, we're going to move through a number of points. I'll spend a significant amount of time on this first one, peace through forgiving one another, as we look at this issue between two women in this church in Philippi. But then also as we look at these commands that Paul kind of rattles off towards the end of this epistle, to rejoice always, to be reasonable or gentle with people, to not be anxious and to pray and to think about the right things. These are God's commands, which ultimately bring us peace. 
Not because we need more peace with God apart from the peace that Christ has achieved through his atoning death, but God's commands for our life are a gift. That our lives are far more peaceful and less hectic the more we walk according to his word. And so let us look at these things this morning and direct your attention to verses two and three in particular. We'll spend a significant amount of time on these verses as the Lord was speaking to me through my preparation in particular through these verses. Verse two says, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It appears that Paul is aware of some conflict in this Philippian church. To review, we know that Paul is in Rome. Paul is under house arrest. But even all the way from Rome, he knows that there is some sort of conflict going on in the church of Philippi. And he pleads for there to be a resolution. Now, what's interesting is we, we don't know the specifics of this conflict. The only specifics we're given is that there appears to be two women, Eudea and Syntyche, who are at odds with one another, who are not at peace with one another. We don't know what this may be about, whether it was one sinning against the other, an argument, a false teaching, whatever it may be. But one thing is evidently clear from the way that Paul addresses this situation is that these women are sisters in Christ, that they are indeed believers, that this is not wolves amongst the sheep, this is the sheep fighting with one another. And this issue is of particular importance to Paul because although there's a conflict between Eudea and Syntyche, this conflict is not just dividing them, but has the potential and in all likelihood is dividing the church. As those who are fellowshipping in this church are probably faced with this conflict and faced with the decision of who am I going to side with? Am I going to be on this side or this side? If you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, maybe you've seen conflicts like this happen within your own church at some point, that two believers in the Lord would find disagreement, would be at odds with one another, and that issue would grow to a point that now the whole church is having to pick sides in this issue, that the church, as the redeemed people of God, is not at peace with one another. This is a serious issue, so serious that Paul does not shy away from naming names in particular. Imagine being in this church as Paul's letter is being read and agreeing and being encouraged by, by what he is saying, what he's instructing the Lord, and all of a sudden hear your name come out and say, be at peace with this other person. Doesn't happen often in the scriptures, doesn't happen often in the church, but sometimes it is indeed necessary. And so how is it that these two Christian women who we know have labored side by side with Paul, meaning at one time they were at peace with one another and they were working to advance the gospel and build up this church alongside Paul and others, whose names are indeed in the book of life. And if your name is in the book of life, then salvation is kept for you by God. How could these women and thus this church be so divided with one another? Moreover, what are we to do about this when this does take place? Because while we see it happen here from some of the faces that I see in this 
audience this morning and some of the head nods, we may have seen some of this happen in previous church contexts as well. And it's likely that at some point it will happen even within this church here at Harvest Liberty Lake Church. So what can we learn from this conflict? One, we learn that these things indeed happen. They happen. Brothers and sisters, brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters in the Lord can be at odds with one another. And it may not be clear who ultimately is in the wrong or even at fault. I think of a time in my own life, as I was first getting into ministry, I was invited to kind of take over the youth ministry that I grew up in by teaching the high school students from God's word. And it was really an interesting situation because I was a young man, I was 19 years old. Some of the students in the ministry were people that less than a year ago I was in school with. And almost all the adult leaders in the ministry were my leaders at some point. And I was learning to preach, and it is indeed a skill that, that needs to be learned. And I will confess that at this time I, I wasn't very good. I was learning how to do it, and I remember our church was doing a church-wide study, and so we wanted to match what the youth ministry was doing with what the church was doing on a Sunday morning. And the idea was that we were gonna, we were gonna all teach all of our ministries what it is to love God. And in some ways, I'm ashamed to admit that as a young teacher of God's word, I had the hardest time coming up with a message that week. How do you fit this into a message? How do we talk about this? And I remember pouring over my notes, pouring over my commentaries, writing pages and pages of things, and then it came time to deliver the message to our teenage high school students. And what should have been at least a 20 to 30 minute message turned out to be quite honestly less than five minutes. It was terribly awkward. And in desperation, I just said, you know what, let's just go to our groups, let's break up, and let's discuss. And then a dear brother, someone who had mentored me in the faith, who was in many ways a father figure, a small group leader of mine less than two years ago, raised his hand and said, Sam, you forgot something. And so trusting this man, I said, sure, Chris, what is it? And for the next 15 minutes, he gave his own sermon from his seat on what it is to love God. And what I do remember is, I don't remember anything about my message that morning or that evening other than it was awful. And I remember hearing what he was saying and saying, yeah, that's true, we love because God first loved us. And he explained it really well, but maybe didn't do it in the best way. What he said was true, but I had to sit there for 15 minutes as he preached a message from a seat and the students watched. And so there was conflict from us, both people, myself and him, who loved God, loved his word, loved these students and want them to know the love of God through his word. But yet that was a tough hill to get over after that. To get up the next week and preach involved a little bit more nervousness. And we were not at peace with one another, I'm ashamed to say, for quite some time. But praise God, a number of years later, we, we reconnected and we forgave one another. I forgave him for, for his boldness to, to preach a message from the pews in some ways. But I also asked for his forgiveness for not seeking reconciliation myself as we were continuing to work in that situation. And also for, for failing to handle God's word as I should have in that moment. And so these things happen. It happened in the life of Paul. It's not just myself, but Paul actually knows from his own firsthand experience what it is to be at odds with another brother in 
Christ. You may not be familiar with Paul and his life of ministry, but he did multiple missionary journeys. And influential in Paul's life was a man named Barnabas. Right? If you're familiar with Paul's conversion, he was a persecutor of the church who was radically saved by God. But the Christians at the time were hesitant to accept Paul as a true believer. Is he just pretending to be in the faith so that he can find out where we are so he can jail us and destroy us? And it was Barnabas who said, no, Paul is a genuine brother and I will go with him on these journeys. And they, in many ways, were inseparable on that first missionary journey, working to further God's kingdom together. But when it came time to make their second missionary journey, there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. You see, they traveled with other helpers, with other people that they were discipling, mentoring, that were helping and aid them in their spread of the gospel. And one of those people was John Mark. He had hooked up with them during their first missionary journey, but at a certain point, he abandoned them. And when it came time to plan their second missionary journey, gracious Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul adamantly opposed him. And it ultimately led to the division and the separation of the dynamic duo of Paul and Barnabas. We read of this in Acts 15, verses 36 through 40. I'll read this for you this morning. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And so here is the separation of two leaders, very godly men, very influential within the church, clearly both born again believers. And yet this sharp disagreement over this individual, John Mark, is what divided them. There's a bit of irony here because Barnabas is the man of second chances, willing to be the first one to forgive and support in many ways. He did that to Paul in the first place. And yet Paul is slow to do the same thing for another brother in Christ. But praise God that there was indeed reconciliation even between these men, Paul in particular with Mark, and thus by correlation, Barnabas. In one of Paul's very last letters that he wrote towards the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 11, he writes this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So clearly at some point there was indeed peace that was restored, reconciliation that had happened. And so Paul is writing these women saying, I know what it is to be divided from a brother or sister in Christ. But let us not forget that they are indeed a brother and sister in Christ. And so we need to pursue reconciliation, forgiveness, to be at peace with one another so that peace can reign in the church, so that we can model the peace that comes through Christ's forgiveness. So the idea here is if good Christians, like these women, like Paul and Barnabas, dare I say to use myself as an example, as myself and that youth leader 
that was in my ministry and one of my youth leaders, if we will experience conflict with one another and not be at peace, then it's likely to happen again. And we need to know how to navigate this. And I do think there are some good principles here just within these two verses. How do you handle conflict between two born again Christians? Well, first and foremost, I think one of the things we see modeled here is that when the conflict gets serious enough, when the threat of division starts to spread, not just between these two individuals, but also the church, it is right and it is appropriate for leaders and other Christians to get involved. We may be slow to do this. This may feel like we're being nosy. We're getting in each other's business, but it is indeed necessary. This is what Paul is, is saying. This is the instruction that he has given. He's, he's writing and he says, yes, I ask you also, true companions, those of you who are co-laborers in the gospel, those of you who are part of this church, help these women who have labored side by side. We are to help one another navigate conflicts such as these and to pursue peace. We have to be prepared to get involved and we have to even be willing ourselves to let people get involved in our lives. You need to have a, a relationship with those in your church, particularly the leaders in your church where you say, I invite you to get involved in situations like this when I need it. Now, I may not invite you in the moment, but prior this commitment, this relationship that we're establishing, I want this relationship to include you helping me pursue peace with brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are some principles in scripture laid out even prior to this that talk about that this is what the church does, particularly the leaders that were to ensure peace amongst one another when harsh disagreements arise. My mind goes to, to a famous passage that we often label as the passage on church discipline, which sounds negative, but if you're a parent, if you're a student of God's word, you know that discipline is a sign of love, that its goal is peace. And so if you would read with me, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, you can follow along on the screen behind me, but this is Jesus giving some instructions on how to pursue peace within his church amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. That's meant that in many ways, this is our formula. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We often think that this passage applies only to situations in which someone has navigated into deep sin to the point where it looks like they're turning away from the Lord. And, and sadly, that is what becomes maybe evidently clear as we navigate through this process, as we go through the levels of discipline. But some of this is, is the idea of pursuing peace with one another, that when someone sins against you or when you have a conflict with another brother or sister, go and talk with them. And maybe your relationship will be restored through your proactiveness in pursuing peace. And if peace is not found in, in that instance, then yes, you can gather other believers if the conflict is severe, if the division is great. 
and ask others to help in this reconciliation process. And if it becomes clear that that someone is still unwilling, maybe both parties still unwilling to forgive, then you involve the church in the more formal sense and and the leaders of the church in the more formal sense. And if still yet there is not a solution, then we need to go back to square one of, do you know what forgiveness is? It may be a small sin or a somewhat minor conflict, but it may reveal that one or both parties may not truly understand what forgiveness is as it is demonstrated in Christ Jesus. Because as Christians, we are called to forgive. There were more scriptures than I, than I could fit in my notes, but I have six of them here that tell us that as Christians, we are to exercise forgiveness as modeled to us by Christ himself. I want to read them for you quickly. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are to forgive like Jesus. Stated again, Colossians 3.13, we're to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Such a sin, sometimes it's complaints. We are to offer forgiveness as freely as Christ offers us forgiveness. We're to pray this way. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.12, we ask God to forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who are indebted to us. Further on in that chapter that we have that model of church discipline in, right? It can seem very harsh to go through this process unloving, but those verses that immediately follow are verses 21 through 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I, did not, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The idea of that process of going through church discipline, say you go through that and a person's restored and then it becomes necessary again and then it becomes necessary again. And each time they repent and they're restored, how many times should we go through that process with someone? Seven times? As many as 77 times. Meaning as long as they repent, as long as you understand how you are forgiven in Christ, You are to forgive them as I have forgiven you. And there's a warning for those of us who do not practice forgiveness, who hold on to these wrongs. Matthew 6, 14 through 15 says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespass. It's gonna be a hard verse to understand. But essentially, I think the truth that is contained in this verse is if you are unable to forgive a brother or sister of Christ, then you do not understand the forgiveness that Jesus offers you. That you may not actually be saved. Because to know Christ is to know forgiveness and to know the forgiveness of Christ and have his spirit in you, you should be led to forgive others even when they sin grievously against you. Similar warning in Mark eleven twenty five. 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. One commentator as I was studying this passage put it this way. 
There should be no such thing as irreconcilable differences between Christians. That because we have been reconciled to God, he has given us a ministry of reconciliation even towards one another. That of all people, we should be the ones most able, most willing to forgive the wrongs that have gone against ourselves. And to not do so is to act as if your standards of forgiveness are higher than God's. You may have been forgiven by God, but it's too much for me to forgive you. My standards are here. And you need to meet those in order to obtain this forgiveness. You and I realize that's what you're saying, but that is indeed what you are doing. And be careful when you do that because God's standards were the highest. That forgiveness is obtained through the death of our perfect Savior. That Jesus would shed his blood, have his body be broken, suffer the invisible wrath of God, that you would be forgiven. If he was willing to absorb that cost in his body, how much more so could you absorb such a smaller cost to forgive those who you may not have peace with, particularly in the church? Reconciliation, forgiveness, pursuing peace, it is hard. It is very hard. It is far easier to just leave, find a new church, start over, build some new relationships. Friends, that is just avoiding this problem altogether. If you can't forgive a brother and sister within the church that you are currently involved in, then you will not be able to forgive a brother and sister in the next church that you will currently be involved in, that you as a Christian need to be reconciled to your brothers and sisters and be at peace with them. Maybe it still ends up that you go and fellowship other places, but pursue peace. Pursue peace. It's hard, but it is worth it. It truly is. Consider how the church is described in the New Testament, that we are the family of God. Would you deprive forgiveness from a family member? Would you break up this family and just leave? The church is the, the bride of Christ. It is her beloved. Would you abandon her by leaving? The church is the body of Christ. Should we so quickly remove limbs and parts of the body for lack of willingness to pursue peace? It is better that we do the hard work to pursue peace with one another. And oftentimes it takes the help of the entire church together. That we need to be willing as a body, as a family, as the bride of Christ to pursue peace with one another, helping a brother or sister be reconciled to one another. This can only be done if we all share a strong, common commitment to one another and to God. Plan to speak more on this in the new year, but I think this is where one of the tools of ministry that may be new to some of you, that you may not have given much thought to, but the tool of membership of a local church aids us in this. That as we commit in membership to a local church, we're committing to do this very thing, that I will be here even when it's hard and that others will be here for me even when it's hard. 
It's not a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of how can we better walk in obedience as we pursue peace with one another. That is those who have been forgiven by Christ. We also ought to forgive one another, particularly those who have been born again. And so there you have it. We pursue peace through forgiving one another. Thank you for bearing with me in that point for so long. Now let me move quickly through some of these five commands that Paul peppers in towards the end of this epistle. The first is found in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul making it abundantly clear that as Christians, we are to be a joyful, rejoicing people. He stated it many times already throughout the book of Philippians, but he states it twice here with a modifier of always. Rejoice in the Lord, always again rejoice. In many ways, he could not be making this point any more clearly. But yet this too can be a difficult thing because what is it to rejoice in the Lord? I would encourage you to reflect on the life that Paul lived. Because to rejoice, to be filled with joy as a Christian is something that we can do even when things around us aren't going all that well. If you're familiar with Paul's missionary journeys, you know that often he was rejected, he was beaten, he was arrested, he is currently in house arrest, even as he writes these things and he says, rejoice always, rejoice in the Lord. This is the same Paul who, having been beaten and imprisoned at midnight, is singing praises to the Lord in jail. How can we as Christians rejoice at all times? Well, it's not easy to do, in some ways, it is easy to understand. Our joy is not to be dependent on our circumstances. Because circumstances, they come and go. There are times in life where things are going great, and there are times in life when things are not going so great. But you know what is a sure thing? Our eternity with the Lord. That if throughout your life, no matter what you're going through, if you have that forward gaze of being with Christ or having him come to make all things new, then you can have joy because you have hope that our lives are more than just this world, that we await a future glory that is kept for us for sure in heaven because what Christ has done. And that is something to rejoice in at all times. It goes back to what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, that as long as I'm here on this earth, I'm living for him. And as I live for him more and more each day, I can rejoice at the same time, to die is my gain, because then I will be with Christ. There's nothing that can put, me, put anybody in a bad mood when that is your attitude. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul calls us to rejoice always and at all times. And to just kind of diagnose your own spiritual health, if you lack joy in your life, it very well could be because you are living too much for the things of this world. The things of this world do not satisfy. Whether you find yourself in want or whether you find yourself without any wants, you may find yourself without joy if that is your chief concern in one situation or the other. I believe next week we'll hear how Paul can be content or joyful in all circumstances, whether he has a lot or a little. And so we'll save more of that for next week. But the command here is to rejoice. Next is to be reasonable. He says in verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
the Lord is at hand. Another possible way to translate this or to understand this command is not just your reasonableness, but your gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. You'd see how some of these things work together, that if, if you're not joyful, if you're grumpy, if you're unhappy, it's hard to be reasonable and gentle with others. You're more likely to be harsh and irritable. But let your reasonableness and your gentleness be known to everyone. Let people see your demeanor and wonder why it is that you always seem to be at peace. This is one of the defining characteristics of, of Christ and what he offers us as we are followers of him, that he is gentle and lowly. We have this recorded in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so we are to have these same qualities in us as as God manifests more of his character in us through his spirit, that we too are to be gentle and lowly people, reasonable in our interactions, both with believers and, excuse me, and non-believers. We as Christians are never to give a reason in our behavior for those to reject the message of the gospel. The gospel at its core is already an offensive message. You have to understand that you are a sinner who cannot save yourself and must trust in God. For many, apart from Christ, that message alone is offensive. Just look at the world's reaction. Let us not add any extra offense as we bear that news. Let us be gentle and reasonable. Our speech be seasoned with salt as we share the good news of this gospel. One of the qualifications for for leadership in a church as we look at passages that talk about elders, but one that we should all aspire to is this idea of having a good reputation among outsiders. That to be a Christian but to be an irritable person ought not to be the case. That we ought to be known for our reasonableness and our gentleness because of Christ in us. Paul goes on to say, verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Here are two commands. The first is do not be anxious in anything. Whether we're willing to accept it or not, Our worry is connected to our faith. To worry much is is to show that we we don't have much faith. I don't say this to to put you down because I too worry about the things uh, things of this world. Worry about my family. Worry about things at work. Worry about finances. Worry about plans. The more we worry, the more we are not focusing on our faith in God. Too much worry means not enough faith. And Jesus, not only Paul, but Jesus tells us often, do not be anxious. One of my wife's favorite passages and a growing one in which I love is Matthew chapter 6. A familiar passage for probably many of us as Jesus talks about, do not be anxious about anything. Look at the, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. They do not work or toil and their, daily, their father gives them everything that they need daily. How much more important are you than these things as created image bearers. But one thing that struck me as I reviewed this passage is Jesus three times in that section of scripture tells us not to be anxious. First says it in verse 25 of Matthew 6, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? In verse 31, he says it again, 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And lastly, verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is our own trouble. If we are anxious about things, let us turn and hope in God all the more, trusting that he is a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children. To aid us in our anxiousness, Paul also encourages us to pray and to pray about everything, right? If you find yourself anxious and you need more faith, then go to the Lord in prayer. Bring these needs before him. Ask him whatever it is that you need. Don't work harder. Don't spend more hours awake in night thinking about solutions. Don't pour yourself more into your work. Go to the Lord in prayer. Pray about these things. This is a remedy in many ways to our anxiousness and an aid in increasing our faith and trust in God and not our own ability to fix things. But he also says, don't just pray about everything. Don't just bring supplication or requests, but do it with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God with thanksgiving. Often what's missing in our prayers is this, giving thanks. The way we pray is, is by laying out a list of our complaints, our wants, our needs before the Lord, finishing, amen, I'm done. Now, God is gracious and he hears these prayers, but it is to your benefit to spend time in worship as you pray, to spend time giving thanks to God as you pray. And lo and behold, when you start to introduce thanksgiving in your prayer, though your list of needs may not shrink, your experience of anxiety may indeed shrink as you begin to see God's faithfulness in your life, despite all these things that you do indeed need help with, to become more aware of his faithfulness, his provision, his goodness to you in the midst of these things is important. Paul writes similarly in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 about prayer. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you've ever wondered what God's will is for your life, it's this, to pray, to give thanks, to rejoice in all circumstances and to do it without ceasing. That prayer should almost be similar to how we go about our day, just breathing. We breathe in, we thank God, we exhale, we ask for requests, ask him to help us. That we're to always be thinking of the Lord. It's not that you have to be on your knees constantly, forgo all your responsibilities, but your attitude should be one in which your mind continually goes to the Lord with the things of your day. Let me leave you with one last encouragement as regards to pray about everything. I was taught in a previous ministry setting to use God's word to guide our prayers. That it has aided me in not just having a list of requests to bring before the Lord, but as I go to scripture and I read scripture to pray scripture back to God, to praise him for his character, for his goodness, and maybe even be led to ask for things that weren't on my list. My list may be very tangible, practical needs, but as I'm confronted with even passages such as these, God, would you help me be at peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you protect us from division? That's something that doesn't often make my list on my own. But as I read God's word and pray it back to him, I'm prompted to pray in those regards. So pray about everything and give thanks as you pray. Lastly, Paul says to think the right things, to think the right things. 
Jump down to verse eight. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is, uh, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We're called to think about these things. True things, honorable things, just things, pure things, lovely things. For lack of time, I don't have to, the ability to go into the specifics of each one of these words, but just know that in our sinful flesh, our tendency is to not think about good things, but to dwell on the negative. In many ways, I wouldn't be surprised if that was at the core of this issue between these two women that we talked about prior. They were not thinking about the good things, what is true, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent, what is just, what is pure. They were thinking of their opposite. They were thinking of things that were false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, ugly, improper, inferior, and unworthy, particularly as it relates to maybe that other person. We're prone to talk about the latest gossip. I'm sure even this conflict was probably widely talked about within this church, as opposed to talking about God's word, the message, what God's doing in your lives. Let us think and speak and dwell on the good things that come from God. And so we have these five commands to rejoice always, to be reasonable, to be gentle, to not be anxious, to pray about everything, and to think about the right things. And these are commands in this scripture. This is what Paul is saying. You as Christians ought to walk in obedience in those things. And if we do, we will experience more and more the peace of God in our life, and particularly in our communal life as a church. Direct your attention again to verse 7. Paul writes in the midst of all this, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He ends in verse 9, that as we practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. It's not that he's not already with you in Christ Jesus, but you'll be more aware that he's there and you will share in his peace. And that's what it is. It's us sharing in the peace that God experiences in himself, that he is not on conflict with himself. He is not anxious. He is not worried. He is the God of peace because he is peace. And as we walk according to his ways, we get to share in that peace. And this ought to be a defining feature, characteristic trait of the church. I hope and pray that it's a characteristic of our growing ministry here, that we would be a church known for the peace of God. That when people come here, they will feel his peace present in this room in ways that they don't outside of this room as we gather to worship him. Gospel of John talks about this, John 14, 27. This is one of the promises that Jesus says to his disciples. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christ gives us his peace, peace that is only available through him. The world does indeed seek peace, but that peace is fleeting, it is not satisfying, and it is no real peace at all. But you and I, we have peace through Christ Jesus. Let me end by pointing out three ways in which we have that peace. Number one, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus. That apart from our faith in him, we are enemies of God, but Christ, having borne our punishment, has brought us 
peace with God. We also, as Christians, get to experience peace in our lives. That though it may seem like things are chaotic all around us, because we have God with us, we can be at peace. Jesus sleeping on the boat in the midst of that storm is a perfect picture of this. We can feel like our life is full of a storm, but yet as as a Christian, as one who trusts in Christ, we can be just as peaceful as Jesus was physically in that, in that moment as well. We have peace in our own lives. We're no longer striving, no longer anxious, but we're trusting in him. And then lastly, as we pointed out earlier in this message, we can have peace with others. Because Christ has forgiven us, we are free and able to forgive others and be at peace with them. And when we live this out, when we do it, the world will be able to see it. And they'll be drawn to this perfect savior. And maybe they too will experience the peace that you and I share in, in Christ Jesus. Let us pray.